Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Don't Miss This Podcast, a Come Follow Me study with Emily Bell Freeman and David Butler. We fill this show up with all the things we think you don't want to miss in the scriptures every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello. I'm David Butler. I'm Emily Freeman. Okay, this week we're doing Come Follow Me. It is, I gotta look, it's Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3. So this is the first time we are meeting Mark, so we want to take just a second and talk about who Mark is. That's in the Come Follow Me manual. Yes, you'll be able to see it in there You can see a little bit in there, and then in Ron's... Some of our favorite parts that we want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. On the journaling sheet. Yeah, on Ron's journaling sheet. You'll see it right there. You'll see some of those things. But anyways, it's kind of fun that a lot of... um, Bible scholars think he, this was the very first gospel that was actually written, and that Mark uh, maybe was a teenager when he first heard Jesus preach, and um, then later he becomes an interpreter for Peter, and, uh, and, and most scholars think that he learned all the stories from Peter. So everything that's in the book of Mark comes because Peter told Mark. Um, he was also a companion of Paul, which is kind of fun. His name was John Mark. Um, they often use his mom's house for gathering places, the saints. In fact... The Last Supper, a lot of Bible scholars think they think it happened in uh, Mark's mom's house. So that's kind of fun. So, and let's reiterate, when we're talking about Bible scholars, where we are gathering that information would be, people who would be Bible scholars would be James Talmadge. Um, Alfred Adersheim is one of my favorite Bible scholars. If you get a study version of the Bible, or if you get um, that book we showed you, New Testament from start to finish, by, by um, Valletta. Valletta or mm-hmm. Thomas Wayman's book, they, they reference these Bible scholars also. So yeah, that's where we're getting. Good people idea. People who study the culture and the times of Jesus Christ and are trying to give us insight on what yeah, maybe was the original, ma- the, the earliest manuscripts we have, the Greek, you know, yeah. all going back into yeah. that. So, and it's fun because I did for many years wondered, why don't we ever hear the voice of Peter in the story of Christ? Because he was there from the beginning. So I loved when I first learned that Mark yeah, probably cool. was cool. telling the story uh, through Peter's eyes. Yeah, that's so. awesome. Um, and then we love this line, that his intention was to prove that Jesus was the Son of God living and acting among men. Men, yep. yeah, On there, the right, with them yeah. and everything. So that's really neat. Um, okay, so that's who Mark is. The other thing that we talk, oh, well, next one I want to talk about on the sheet is... Um, about John the Baptist. So oh, Emily's going to tell you a little bit about him. About John the Baptist. But where's my little special paper that wants to tell us about John? No, the Baptist? it was from the book. Oh, okay, that is why. Um, okay, here are some things we loved about John the Baptist. I'm taking this from Alfred Adersheim. If you are wondering, um, when people at that time were listening to people preach and they were talking about the kingdom of God coming to the earth, most of the people, because of the Romans. Um, being over all of the Jewish people, they were looking for a rebellion to come, right? They wanted someone to come and deliver them out of that situation. And when John started teaching, um, he wasn't teaching from a white horse. Um, He didn't come clothed as if there was going to be what everyone was thinking deliverance was going to look like. He was in the wilderness. And his was not a call to armed resistance, but to repentance. So for a lot of people, they were like, this doesn't make sense about the kingdom of God coming to earth. And, and that's what you're teaching. He, there was nothing negative or controversial in what he was teaching. He just was teaching the word of God. It's what they would have been familiar with. And um, as you looked at him there in the wilderness, what he was wearing, what he ate, right? It, it was all just the most 
common, simple. Um, everything about him was true and real. There, nothing would have been um, interesting about him. He did, what was interesting was his message. And, Just unexpected. Um, like people yeah. didn't expect that to be the messianic message. Yeah, and that is what his call was. And I love this, that um, above all, when you looked at John, there was the deepest earnestness and um, the fact that for himself, he sought nothing. Yeah. What he wanted to talk about was this Messiah who would come and bring in the kingdom. And there was nothing about John. He just was this quiet, unassuming, doing his work in the middle of the wilderness. And if you wanted to know what he was teaching, you came to where he was. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah, it's just kind of crazy to think about. I mean, he comes from Zacharias, the priest, and Elizabeth. He's that miracle baby, mm -hmm. you remember, you know, from the beginning. And, yeah. just, and that's why he'll say phrases like, when people start to follow and listen to him, he always turns them over to the Savior. You remember that from our John 1 lesson. He's like, go ask him. Go talk to mm -hmm. him. Um, he, that's why he says, you think this is good, but someone whose sandals I'm not even worthy to buckle is coming. Someone so much greater than I. I love when John the Baptist in John 1 says, um, he must increase and I must decrease. It's just what and his that's personality the message of was his like. Life. Right. Mm -hmm. That was what, so he, what he was like. Um, in the Come Follow Me, you're going to find um, a lot of things about his message of repentance and about baptism. So we're not going to talk a lot about that on here. But you might want to go over, especially um, if you have younger kids, the who, what, when, where, why, how of baptism. and just Because this is where Jesus is baptized. This is where he shows that example um, the authority that John the Baptist um, baptizes him with. He would have gotten that from his father. His father and mother were both from the priestly class. They were from the tribe of Levi that held um, the priesthood of Aaron at the time. And, so, you, and you mean his father, Joseph, when you say... Oh, I meant um, John the Baptist's oh, father, Baptist. Zacharias. So he was from the tribe of Levi that held the authority to be able to administer baptism, which is why... you know you might So you might talk with those about your kids. But that's in the Come Follow Me, the one um, for primary. Oh, we should say this. There, there's three. There's yes, one for um, individual studies. Um, it's this orange one that's right here. Individual and family studies. Um, this is the gospel doctrine, what your um, teachers will be teaching out of. Right. And then there's one that's blue colored. We have, I don't think we have oh, that yeah. one. That's a primary one that the primary teachers have. So I don't, you might look at all three of those if you're just kind of looking for ideas for kids, especially. And as you're looking at the baptism, one thought is to do the who, what, where, when, why, how. Um, also talking about, this is one of the places in the New Testament where we see the Godhead um, in three oh, yeah, separate yeah. Mm -hmm. um, instances right within that baptism. So that's a great thing to be pointing out for yeah, just kids. teaching, having to, to talk about the Godhead, you know, mm -hmm. just as a teaching time to talk about who is the Godhead? What's the Father's role? What's the Son's role? What's the role of the of the Holy Spirit? You know, that's a great spot to, you know, to do something about yeah. that. Um, I do want to say something about, it's John 1 where we get the location of, he's baptizing in the Jordan River. There's a little map on your study sheet that shows the spot. It's called Bethabara where he was baptizing. It is right near the Dead Sea, which is over 1,300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest spot on planet Earth. So there's something pretty significant about Jesus choosing to be baptized in that place, right? He, he goes to the very lowest spot, right by the Dead Sea, which, you know, nothing grows or mm -hmm. lives in that place. Yeah. And so right there at that spot is where Jesus chooses to be baptized, showing that 
condescension of him. Or he's like, I will descend below all things. And because I descend below all things, all things that are dead can come alive again. So right there by the Dead Sea and, and the Jordan River, it's just a... And it's interesting he, because that's where his public life ends. And that's where his ministry begins. Or private life ends. I mean, his private yeah. life ends. And his ministry begins. And he um, starts going. And the message is just exactly what you just said. From the point he is baptized is to bring life. Right. Right. Wherever you're at. I, he goes to the... Right. I, my message is for the world. For God so loved the whole world. And so he says, where will I go? I will go to the lowest place um, on earth. I was just thinking, um, when President Nelson first became the president of the church... He did that worldwide tour, and um, I thought it was pretty significant that their first stop that they go to was Jerusalem, um, and then after that he circumscribed the whole goal, the whole globe. And he he had said, I, "I had two messages. One was first stop, the center of our message and faith is in Jesus Christ, and then we are a worldwide family." This is his whole... So it's neat to see things yeah. like that. Jesus does that too. He's like, "This is where I'm choosing to be baptized to send." This particular message. So you're going to find in Luke three and Matthew three that that fr that phrase from John the Baptist that his job was to prepare the way mm -hmm. of the Lord, and he's dressed in camel hair. He eats bugs. He eats honey. His hair probably wasn't combed. He's in like, the middle. If you've ever been there, I mean, the place where he most likely was teaching is in the middle of nowhere. You wouldn't have passed by it on your way to somewhere. It just was this this dead wilderness. And if you wanted the message, you actually had to come and find him right. to get the message. And it's just neat that somebody like that, that you would think, this is a boy who, like, a lot of people think grew up in hiding mm -hmm. because Herod was after his father. We learn from Joseph Smith that Herod was, I mean, that Zacharias was killed by, mm -hmm. his, by his father. And uh, someone in hiding, um, his parents probably passed away, scruffy looking, camel hair wearing, and, and yet he has this mission to prepare the way of the Lord and... I just think it's neat to think about ordinary people in ordinary places. Are the ones who are bearing witness. Yeah. Um, and, and leading people. I mean, who leads people better than John the Baptist to yeah. the Savior? And that's neat. Yeah, anybody so anybody can, can do that. This line we want to talk about, one last thing with Jesus' baptism, is when Jesus is baptized and comes up out of the water, you know, um, the Holy Ghost descends in, in the sign of the dove. And uh, you hear the voice of the Father this is in Luke chapter 3. It's also in Mark chapter 3 um, where the, the Lord says, the Father says, um, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And to hear that testament of the Father about the Son. Anytime in Scripture we hear the voice of the Father, it's bearing witness of His Son. He's His beloved Son in whom He's well pleased. But I love this part because Jesus hasn't done anything yet. All he's done is gotten lost from his mom and dad in the temple and whatever else he did as a kid. He hasn't begun any of his miracles. He hasn't been to the cross or Gethsemane yet. And at the beginning of his ministry, the father says, this is my beloved son. Beloved is a word. Anytime there's a B in front of a word, it comes from a root that means fully. Um, so beloved means fully loved and well pleased with his son. Before he does a thing, I think that's really important that um, Jesus isn't fully loved and, and the Father isn't well pleased with him because of anything he's done, but because of his relationship with him. This is my son. I fully love him and well pleased with him. And, and he could say the same thing about anyone watching this. He fully loves you, is well pleased with you because of your relationship with him, 
not because of anything that you've done. So I, I, I've always yeah, loved that line. Yeah, so good. Um, we want to also go into one of the messages that John teaches. So I'm going to be in Luke chapter 3, verse 8 is where I'm going to. Right at the bottom of the page um, of Luke 3, verse 8, it says, Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Um, and I love this thought of John teaching repentance. And right at the beginning, as we start out this New Testament journey, we want to tell you one of our favorite lessons on repentance. Um, if you look up the Greek translation for the word repentance, um, also as you look through um, any of the definitions as you go through the Hebrew, also it's, it talks about a turning back or um, turning again, it's always in reference to turning back to Christ or turning again to Christ. That is what the word repentance means. And one of my favorite ways to remember that actually is how you learn the word in sign language. So many years ago, I was taught that the symbol for change in sign language, you make a C with both of your hands, and then you put your wrists together like this, and then they just change places. See how that happened? You just change. Um, that's what change looks like. Okay, the sign for repentance is so similar. Instead of a C, you make an R with both of your hands, and then you put your wrists together, and this is repentance, okay? It's that turning again. It's turning back. That is what repentance is. And so as you think about repentance, a lot of times when we think about repentance, we immediately think about the bishop's office. I don't know why that happens, but it is so true, especially as I'm talking in seminary, that's where the kids' minds go. When in reality, repentance is every time you turn again to Christ, when you turn back to Him in the morning, when you remember to kneel down and say your prayers, that is a turning again to Christ, right? As we go through the day and something happens and then we're like, oh, I could have done that better, and we, we turn again and we do it the way Christ would have us do it. Um, that's the thought of repentance that we want to be bringing into our mind is that turning again, um, just turning back over and over again as many times as it takes. Our goal is just to get to the point where we are facing Christ throughout the day as many times as we can. And a God who's welcoming and ready and waiting for that. At however many chances right. it takes, right? The God has second time. chances and third chances time. and as many chances as it takes you just keep Turning again so and turning again. Yeah, it's a lot more mm -hmm. simple and hopeful than sometimes we've yeah. made it you yeah. know, out to be, which is why we love this activity we put on the study sheet because in Luke chapter 3, um, Luke 3, starting in verse 10, you start seeing all the people that are there with John at the baptism. Almost like there, there's a crowd of people and, and it mentions groups of people like um, the, 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 the soldiers, um, the, the poor people, um, the Pharisees, and they all ask the same question. And the question is, what shall we do then? Um, how do we do that? And, and then he answers to each of them. So on the study sheet, you've got the verses that are there. You can go see what it says. What shall we do? And, um, and then a spot for you. Like, what if you ask that question? That simple question will probably be a simple answer. Then, then what should I do? What should I do to yeah. turn back to the Lord? So we yeah. really like and you that. Just, you love as you go through. Each of those are pointed out there. When Then the soldiers say, well, and what should we do then, right? And then the people say, and what should we do then? Yeah, because and it's individualized and it's to every individual, single person. And right. it would be fun for you to go through and figure out what does he tell the soldiers yeah. they should do? What does he tell the people they should do? That as he's going through to each one, he's just taking a minute to tell them individually, this is what you should do. Right. And and so what should you? And right. what should And it's a personal question. It's a, great, it's a great question for someone to ask in prayer, right? Yeah. Um, we'll get to this when we get to Paul. 
and Saul, he asked that question. That's mm-hmm. what turns things out yes. so good for him. What, yep. what should I do? Right? Yeah. So good. So another one of our favorite parts is something that actually happens in Mark chapter one. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to go to Mark one. Um, the day before this happens is a day when a lot of healings take place. A whole bunch of people show up at the door and people are wanting to be healed. And Christ spends the whole day doing that. And then the day ends. And now it's early the next morning. I'm going to start in Mark one, verse 35. It tells us this, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him, and when they had found him, they said unto him, everyone is seeking for you. And then he kind of makes known what they're going to do. We're going to actually go into the next town. Um, There's something really interesting about this that I love and I just want to think about for a minute. I love that before the day started, we see a pattern that happens in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's an interesting um, pattern that teaches us something about him. Before the day started, um, Alfred Adersheim says it probably was in the fourth watch, which would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. So that's why his... um, why Peter had to come looking for him, because when they woke up, um, he was gone already. And he had taken that time to go and, and have that moment of prayer. It would be awesome if you shared that quote from President or Elder Uchtdorf from the devotional. Today. Oh, yeah. He just you, had, uh, my friend sent this to me after President Uchtdorf's um, devotional at BYU. And he said, um, casual prayers do not yield sublime answers. Communicating with the divine takes commitment. And I just love that thought. We see the commitment right here, right? We see he had that busy day, but he woke up and the first thing he did was to go and, and talk to his father and say, what should I do today, right? Where, where am I going to go? What is the work you have for me? Um, I love this quote again from Alfred Adersheim. He says, Jesus was not merely a worker of miracles. He lived a life of inward power in fellowship with his father and began his work with prayer. And I just love that. I love the thought of that inward power, that that's how he lived his life. And he began every day with that prayer, with talking um, to his father. And what should I do, right? Probably ask that same question. What, what yeah. should I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's cool. And, and he got his, um, his message there. And as we think about that, I want you to be thinking about where is your solitary place? If you had to name somewhere right now that was your solitary place, where would that place be? Do you have somewhere that you already just know? Many years ago, we had the opportunity to go to Nauvoo. It was in April. No one was there but us. Um, for some reason, we had all of Nauvoo to ourselves, probably because it was freezing everybody. And um, Greg and I had the opportunity to go into the home where Joseph and Emma lived. And when we were walking through, the guide said, just because you're the only ones here, do you want to come in and look um, in this closet? And in the closet was a ladder, and I actually climbed up to the top of the ladder and looked in this little tiny part of the roof that was up there, and he said, the story is that this is where Joseph came when he needed a quiet place to pray or to think. And every time I think about a solitary place, for some reason that is what comes to mind Hmm. for me. It's just that climbing up that ladder and finding that place, and we all kind of need a place like that, especially in the time we live in right now. You think about the world in the last five years and what has happened, and we don't really have moments where we are solitary or alone, right? We don't have moments when we are quiet. 
people can get to us all the time, right? If you're a mom and you have young kids, your kids are everywhere where you are all the time unless they're asleep. But because we have our phones, um, I just want you to think what your habit is. As soon as you sit down and nothing is going on anywhere, maybe you're at a doctor's office, maybe you're just stop got dinner in, you stop. You yeah. just... is it your habit, pick up the phone and just start seeing what is going on in the world and what's happening in your email and your texting and everyone can get a hold of you all the time. We almost have to set aside time to be quiet. That is the world we live in. Like we have to plan for quiet moments. It's just like Jesus did in Mark 1. We have to find that solitary place and we have to schedule time to be there. I love a scripture that we read in 1 Thessalonians, actually. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 is where we want you to turn. And it's just going to be the very first sentence of that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. And he says this, and that ye study to be quiet. And I, when I read that the first time, I thought, oh, that is so interesting that we almost have to put thought into what does it look like to be quiet? What does it look like to find that solitary place, to set aside that time, to learn to have that inward power that comes because we are committed to those conversations we're having with God. And maybe that's something you want to ponder as we go through this week. Yeah, to find... That's what that looks like. Yeah, it just is like... I... And, and we sense this, right? I um, was talking with um, someone one time uh, as a bishop, and she was explaining, my whole life is filled. Like when I go to the bathroom, the kids' fingers come under the door. Um, I have this that I'm working on. I have this that I'm doing. I have this and this and this and this and this. And it was one of those moments where a thought just kind of came to me, and I said it. And I said to her, I was like, um, miracles happen in the margins mm -hmm. of our lives. And you don't have any margins. You're filled um, edge to edge on your calendar. As I walked out of the church that day, um, the Spirit said to me, um, that was advice for you too. Hmm. Um, your life is so filled with things that you're trying to do that are good, but you've got to leave margin times. you got you got to schedule those in. If we're always exhaling, we'll run out of air. We need to take time to inhale and just to, you know, just to think and just to meditate on nothing sometimes and let God write on our souls and just... You know, we, I, that's the pattern that the Savior sets. Yeah. You know, you'd think he has enough divineness to him that he doesn't need it, you know, and he does. Yeah, he, he shows did. that He, he shows, shows that he right does. right there in Mark um, 1 yeah. as he gets going. That's going to be the pattern, right? It's one of his holy patterns is to start the day with prayer. Right. And then what's neat is after that, then he goes back out, um, back out into the villages, back out into the streets, and begins to you know do more of his ministry of, mm -hmm. of healing and and um, one of the next stories right after that is in Mark chapter one. You know what? It's one of our um, favorites. This where is where meets, we're going to end with, and we yeah. just love this story. And he goes out into the street, and it, and and it says, and there came a leper to him, beseeching him, um, kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. That's Mark one forty. Um, there are so many interesting things about that one statement. So just let's think about for a minute, what did it mean to be a leper in those days? Because sometimes we don't necessarily know what that means. Also, as you're teaching to your kids, um, you may need to explain what leprosy is. That's not a common disease in our time. But we do know this. In that time, if you became a leper, what happened immediately to you is you were ostracized. You were sent away from the community. You were not allowed to be by people. Um, 
And in fact, if they ever walked anywhere where in the public, they had to yell out as they were walking unclean, unclean as they walked. Just a statement, almost as if they were saying to people, you don't want to be by me. You don't want to come by me as they were walking down the street. That was their introduction. That was their announcement. It was a reminder every day that nobody wanted to be where they were. And you think about these people who are ostracized. They went years without being touched. Mm. No one hugged them. No one put their arm around them. They just didn't have any human contact, not um, talking or um, touching because they were so kept separate from where everyone else was. Some people called leprosy the living death because it was as if you had died to your family and to your friends, but you you were living through what it would have been like to have been dead. And then not just that emotional pain, but the physical pain, yeah. like your body literally is... Hurts. Hurts and yeah. it's rotting and, and, pe- and falling apart. Yeah. And, and there's no no one who can like... Yeah. And it wasn't just actual contact that would defile a person. Um, you even walking into their place of residence defiled the whole place all about all the way up to the beams of the ceiling just even if you pass through a room um, it was unclean because of you that's the message that those people carried with them um, the rule was you had to stay six feet away from someone who had leprosy so um, that is how far unless the wind was blowing and then it was even farther than that and um, you think to yourself that man would have known the rules of leprosy he would have known He would have known that he couldn't approach the Savior, uh, that he couldn't come near him. And it's also really interesting what he says to Jesus there. Um, But I want you to think before he even makes that comment, when he walks up to the Savior, first of all, what made him brave enough to do that? What gave him the courage to actually approach Jesus in that moment? Because he knew he wasn't supposed to. And you have to think to yourself, is it because he had heard of the healings and is it because he knew his power um, you you couldn't heal someone from leprosy so usually a leper would come up and what they would actually ask is um, for someone to say they were clean declare me whole or healed so it's interesting because that's not what he asked Jesus he doesn't come to Jesus and say will you declare that I am I'm healed or hold that that was a job right of the priest um, the priest right. was was to say that you were clean. You can if re-enter that ever society, happened, you right? Could you re-enter can... society, but it didn't happen. But he doesn't come to ask for the Lord to declare him clean. Read that verse again, because it's so neat what he says. He says, and um, he says, "If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean." And I mm. love that, right? Yeah. He knew he, there was just something about him within that he knew this man has the power to do what no one else can do for me. And what he's asking for is words, right? He, he wants the Lord um, to, to declare him clean. That's what he would expect, right? The Lord yeah. would never, never touch him because it would make him unclean. Right. It would make the danger of the disease spreading. So it's so interesting to watch what happens yeah. in this story. So it's so powerful here because here's someone who's just been like pushed out onto like the mark, like just like the edges of society and the edges of love, and, and there's just no care for him. He doesn't feel like the compassion of, of people. So it is interesting that he runs to him, and not only does he have the power, he knows something about his heart. 
mm-hmm. um, that he would be willing to let him come. And he says, and there came a leper to him, beseeching him, begging him, kneeling down to him and saying unto him, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. Now, there are a hundred different ways that Jesus could have cleansed that man from his leprosy. He could have said magic words. He could have waved his hand over him. He could have sent him to a pool to, you know, wash, to wash, right, seven times. But it is, it is powerful that in here it says that he put forth his hand and he touched him. And that is the mode or method that Jesus chooses to, to heal him. This untouchable man for years maybe has never been touched. And that is how he chooses to heal him, is with that tender um, touch. And, and this is one of the first times, now we're getting to the spot where Jesus is starting his ministry, and you're just really starting to see what a, a tender and compassionate person he is. So look for those details you know, as you study, because you might feel like that a, a leper. We've got a lot of social lepers in the church in our communities, people who feel like nobody. Well, and I love that when you look at that, there are two lessons we learn from him right there in that verse that it would be interesting to think about who are the people who are ostracized right now, either in your family or in your community. Like really, if you had to think, who is the person who is left out right now? And I love the first two things that happen with Jesus. The first says he was moved with compassion. I love that description of Jesus. That's Mm -hmm. one of our very favorite descriptions. We'll talk about that when we get to Matthew 9. But that is how he moved through his day, is with compassion. And so if you were to think about that person who maybe is ostracized right now, um, if a name comes to mind or is just as you're going through your family or your friends, how could you be moved with compassion toward them? And the second thing is the fact of that he he touched him. And what is a way that you could help them to allow the savior to touch their life yeah what is something you could do that would maybe open the door for that to happen it's just a powerful lesson here of how jesus works and what we could learn right right from that it's beautiful it's good stuff just the beginning of his ministry so it's really excited to think what he's like yep so lots of good invitations this week um we hope you found something that just Couple, a lot of things for the kids, especially that last part there. What a great family discussion to send your kids off to school the next week and say, you know, look for where those people are. Go, yeah. go find them. So good. So, okay. okay, see you next week, everybody. This audio was taken from a YouTube video from our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube at Don't Miss This. Also, sign up for our newsletter at don'tmissthisstudy.com and you can follow us on Instagram at Emily Bell Freeman and at Mr. Dave Butler. Thanks for listening. Bye.